G'day, CB here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chewing the Fat. Today, JY and myself had a brilliant chat with Lyndon Purcell about applying knowledge in the fitness industry. Lyndon is a personal trainer, former head of education for a leading health and fitness company, support coordinator, writer, podcaster, and deep thinker. We discuss the differences between formal and informal education, lifelong learning, echo chambers in the fitness industry, the biopsychosocial model in fitness and in healthcare, the fitness industry as a whole, and a whole lot more. Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you haven't already. You can find us on Instagram at chewingthefat underscore podcast, and we would appreciate a follow. Hope you enjoy. G'day guys, welcome to Join the Fat. I'm here as always with the great Chris Bryson. Today we're joined by one of the uh, the people that I look up to most in the fitness industry, um, as he rolls his eyes, um, and someone I've wanted to get on the show since the day we started planning. So welcome, Lyndon Purcell, um, a great man, a great thinker. Today we're going to pick his brain and um, I think we're going to chew uh, some serious fat. So Lyndon, welcome. Thanks, Jimmy. That's a very nice introduction. And it's, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here with, with you and Chris, some guys I've known for a long time. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Let's chew some fat. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lyndon. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, mate. Um, can we start by just giving us a background on, on who you are, mate, what you do with yourself and, and your career progressions to date? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so for the first portion of my career, I guess I worked in um, the health and fitness industry. I was in the sort of S&C side of that originally. Um, you know, coming out of high school, I was very interested in working with athletes as most kids um, who are interested in sport sort of want to do. Um, you always think the end goal is to work with athletes. Um, so I was in S&C for a little bit. Um, and then progressively moved into more just general population and um, sort of bodybuilding and powerlifting sort of style coaching and personal training. So yeah, worked for a company called JPS for a long time. Um, and yeah, I think I really got a kick out of working in personal training. Um, sorry, working with gen pop people and population um, through personal training because I really enjoyed the variety of problems that that came with. And I really enjoyed dealing with people and helping them feel better about their lives in a very multifaceted sense, not just, you know, how I interacted with them in regards to diet and training, but just, you know, the, the bigger rocks that we always talk about in regards to like sleep and, you know, say mindset and all these generic terms that get thrown around a lot more than what they should. Um, and yeah, so I guess that was the, the first portion of my career. Got a couple of degrees in um, sports science. And yeah, now recently I've tried to build on a lot of the skills that I acquired from, from doing that kind of work and working with people and helping them build capacity and improve um, behaviors for the better. Um, and now I'm working in support coordination role in um, the mental health sort of sector, dealing with psychosocial disabilities. 
Um, so yeah, that's, I guess the, the quick or not so quick rundown of my career at the moment. That's no, perfect, mate. It's perfect. And I just want to fill the listeners in on a little bit of a uh, background on our meeting. Um, I remember the first day that you walked into JPS. Um, we all, th- th- this is unfortunately a, uh, well, actually, we are on YouTube. We are filming this. But Lyndon walked in and the first thing he said is that bloke has got the biggest glutes that we've ever seen. And immediately you were the Brett Contreras of Airport West. Um, the other sort of, um, I guess, thing that stood out first uh, or secondly to your glutes about you is um, just your, your, your vast knowledge for a man who was still just in the midst of a degree who hadn't actually um, had too many you know, high upper roles within the PT sphere. And you're walking into quite a, you know, quite a well um, set up establishment in JPS and you were already um, sort of taking charge of our education and our knowledge. And um, that led to you obviously being given the role of the education um, or the head of education at JPS. One thing that I'm interested in is the difference between formal and informal education. So someone who comes in with a university degree or someone who comes in with, you know, a a mentorship or, you know, some form of short course, how did you sort of build up your knowledge um, formally and informally? And if that doesn't make sense, you can let me know. But how do you then obviously teach if you don't have formal degrees, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. It's a good question, um, Jimmy. So thank you for that. It's, it is a tough one. Um, and it's something that I flip flop back and forth on quite a bit. Um, like the current degree I'm doing that, like this will be you know, my third sort of go at the, the tertiary education setting. And I think I've had a different, different experience every time, um, which is not surprising. And sometimes I think, Oh, like these, are what I'm getting out of this is just garbage. Like I could learn this so much better on my own because, you know, the whole just like P's get degrees and just like you, you're sort of optimized to pass these tasks that aren't relevant in a real world sense. And that can be, yeah, that can give you sort of, I think a warped idea of how useful tertiary education is um, or sort of like formal education, say, um, so there's that. And I would definitely say coming into that, um, you know, when we speak about like first meeting coming like the knowledge I brought with me at that point, I would say was, you know, 95% self-taught or like informally taught. Like I would be say going to my classes when I actually went, but then like noting down like, okay, what's the bare minimum I need to do? Um, you know, what's the sort of the essential two or three things this lecture set lecturer said so that I can pass. And then I'd go home and I'd be, you know, I'd probably walk to uni listening to a Danny Lennon podcast flat out. Then I'd go home and um, I'd read, you know, the first muscle and strength pyramids or whatever, like just doing all my sort of own self self-study things and then just be trying to use some of that information to pass my, my uni courses. So I guess I don't really have like an excellent answer for you because I feel like I've taught myself a lot along the way in a sort of an informal sense. And I do really value my own informal learning. Like I don't, 
um, I guess I don't have partitions in my own mind and think, oh no, that's worth less because I didn't learn that at uni. It's just like, I feel like I know various things. I just try and be careful of what I was taught or like what I think I know based on how I was taught it, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I can discard the importance of just going through the tertiary education setting um, or a formal sort of accreditation setting, not just tertiary mm-hmm. education, but a lot more courses are started by people than are completed by people. Um, you know, and the same sort of thing can be said by like starting books and not finishing books or, or whatever. I think there is something valuable about people who are interested in learning about a topic and about a field and are willing to put in the work. It's not that the accreditation is the be all and end all, but it's those values that people hold. And I think they can, they can manifest in a wide variety of different ways. Um, I've said a lot there, so yeah, feel free to jump in. I think it's one that in probably in many industries, you know, that formal qualification, the tertiary education that, you know, allows you to step into a workplace, for example, and be qualified to do a particular job. Obviously, that's a necessity and a requirement to get a base level of knowledge, but it's that ongoing informal education that is arguably so much more important. And obviously, we're, we're chatting to you today about, you know, knowledge in the fitness industry. Um, and the fitness industry probably is a great example of that, where arguably it is relatively easy to get your formal qualification of a certificate three, a certificate four, and go away and practice as a personal trainer. But um, how far is that going to take you in terms of career success and development? Well, you know, maybe there's sort of a ceiling to that, whereas it's the informal education, that sort of passion for ongoing learning that, you know, obviously that's, that strikes us that you've obviously got that and it's something, you know, you very much enjoy and you're very passionate about third year degree and, um, you know, lots of different things we've already mentioned that I think, you know, separates um, the men from the, from the boys from a lack of better term in, in many careers. And I definitely see that in the physio world and in the world of healthcare is that it's one thing to, you know, to have a degree and be qualified to do a job but um, you know, I mean, I know from my own experience, I learned so much more about my job and about, you know, healthcare in the first six months of just being in the trenches than I did four years in uni degree that, you know, I, I can't print out the first six months of experience and put it on my wall in the fancy looking master's degree, but arguably, you know, that's far more important. Um, so yeah, I can sort of completely understand where you're coming from about that and going to formal education and how that complements the formal stuff. It's one thing that I always say um, in part of my role with working with young PTs um, and helping to mentor them is that the process of learning never stops. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, a tertiary degree or, you know, a short course. It's then about applying that knowledge and then furthering the knowledge and then something I'll get into a little bit later is kind of like pushing the boundaries of that knowledge and looking in you know, I guess, rival um, rival spheres of, you know, different um, concepts and things like that that challenge that knowledge. But I also try to, you know, work out sometimes what the best way to encourage people to learn is. So I'm very interested in, in you letting us know how you learn best and what your favourite aspect of learning is, um, you know, what, what makes you want to learn or educate yourself. Yeah. Um, so maybe I just might like wrap a little bit around my previous statement. Um, 
one of the reasons I engage with say like formal education or tertiary education or whatever we want to call it, you know, some kind of structured course is just because of the structure it provides. That's, that is probably like the major distinguishing factor or value that I see from as well as sort of like the reputation benefits that might come with it, you know, like a, and I mean, sorry, the reputation, um, the standards that are held, the, 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 sorry, the standards that are set by something holding a reputation. So like a university has a certain reputation. So there's a certain standard to their content and it's structured. Like ultimately that's the major benefit and the reason why I say like I sign up for more degrees than really what I should. Like, I don't think you should look down on anyone because they have say that in the trenches experience, like you spoke about Chris, like that's so, 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 so valuable. Um, but if you've just had say in the trenches experience, it's like getting a bit of the other, they really do interact. And Mm. um, it's that amalgamation and realizing that you are so blind to the other side of the coin for so long that I think is really valuable. Mm. Um, Sorry to monologue there Uh, in regards (laughs) to my own learning. um, What I enjoy about it and how I go about it. um, I feel like I invest a fair bit of, time in the the sort of the meta research or learning process of like, okay, I'm generally interested in this thing, be it, um, you know, muscle physiology or software um, engineering or, you know, discrete mathematics. I'm going to spend a pretty non-trivial amount of time working out, okay, where are the best sort of resources located on this topic? Like who holds a reputation in the field? what books have they written Um, and just, yeah, going through that sort of filtering process and then trying to double down on the high quality information. And that can look really different um, depending on what sort of field or sector you're in. It doesn't always have to be academic journals. I don't think like there is some absolutely phenomenal information on YouTube or, you know, blogs these days like YouTube and blogs were sort of, you know, uh, cast aside for so long and spoken about as anecdotal evidence that wasn't, um, that's not held to any standard of quality. But the important thing is, is, is this information good? Not what um, format is this method, uh, sorry, is this information taking shape in? So, yeah, I guess I, I do try to read a lot of like forums and yeah, just research books, authors and big names in the field. And then over time you start to hear things again and again. And then I just go, I try and block it out at a certain point and go, okay, I've decided this is what I'm going to learn and I'm going to be open-minded to what, what knowledge this contains like, because you can always read a critique of a book or a critique of a paper and like, there's always another side to the story. Mm. But if you do, I think that that sort of filtering process well enough, then you should have ended up with something that's, that's reasonably um, valuable or perceived to be. And then you just go, okay, this has something to offer that I don't know. I'm going to be open-minded to it. It might challenge some of my preconceptions, 
but I'm going to go about it, learn it. And then once I've sort of assimilated it, then I'll start reading a few more of the critiques and be aware of like the failure modes of this style of thinking. And it's sort of, like you said before, even just the, you know, the YouTube video example, we are in an age now where there are so many more mediums of information and things are coming at us from everywhere and a lot quicker. And it sometimes comes down more to discerning um, or, you know, working out between what could be a valuable source of information or what's, for lack of a better term, bullshit. Um, and again, I think that that's something that you've always encouraged. And um, I know working with you as well, you're very good at analytically looking at the two sides of the argument. And I think that does come down to, you know, your desire to learn, to listen, and then also, um, yeah, sort of pedal through the mud of information that's out there. One of the best concepts that, um, that you and I have discussed before is the concept of echo chambers um and how the information well you actually you know what you could probably um describe the echo chamber concept a little bit better than me um so i'd love you to do that for our listeners and for chris um we <laughs> <laughs> had to google that beforehand Absolutely. Me know. um but and their impact i guess on young coaches and people in the industry uh to be honest i think that's actually a that is a value not a value what's that what i'm looking for that speaks to chris's sort of single single-minded focus on like his job and not being caught up in the sort of because that's like the talk of echo chambers is such a i'm going to use meta again like a meta sort of conversation it's people talking about conversations and saying how like it's used as a term to often criticize how you know or like that that portion over there or that company is an echo chamber. Like it's all just people talking about um, and regurgitating the same ideas and using the same terminology back and forth. Um, So I think the fact that Chris was sort of unaware of that term, if unless I'm not picking up on some sarcasm. Yeah. Anyway, I will describe echo chambers as best I can. Um, it is basically, I guess, sorry, I've got notifications going off everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, my phone's gone crazy as my phone rings and I think we just need airplane mode. Yeah. It's um, an echo chamber is, I guess it's, it's some kind of cultural boundary, I guess, that exists where it's like, it's, it's a group of people um that probably subscribe to certain ideas and are quite um, quite isolated from challenging ideas or just the way that other portions of the world or the industry are viewing things. It's yeah, it's very much sort of a, I guess a concept around the idea of like being surrounded by like yes men and yes women, just like, this yes this is the way we think of things like yep you said the right thing great like you know that's exactly you know it 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 is all calories or you know it is all whatever the equivalent of sort of reductive thinking in the physiosphere is like there is you know there's something that you say that that gets claps and applauses from from all those around you but the question for me is is like is the like 
are we actually thinking about the concept correctly? Like, are we actually getting closer and closer to some kind of truth on the matter? Yes. Um, social approval can be used as a proxy for that because say, if you've got a hundred people who agree with your opinion versus 10 people who agree with your opinion, then you've got, uh, you know, that's an indication that a hundred people's life experience and perception of the world does kind of align with the way that you're viewing things versus 10. So like that is again, a great indication that you're onto something, but it's not a perfect measure. So we can't be just basing our perception of the world and what we think to be true and what we think is knowledge or useful um, just based on everyone around us going, yeah, that's great. Because yeah, if you are just being surrounded by people who are telling you you're, you know everything or you sell the right things, then odds are you are probably in an echo chamber. Mm. So being in this theoretical echo chamber is then therefore likely to limit your ongoing professional development and learning in, in that industry. Um, I assume is, is going to be the downfall of that. Um, and I imagine having this conversation like this and you guys is something we've discussed a lot before you, we probably see that quite a lot in the fitness industry. Um, I mean, how do, how do people become aware that, you know, that's how they're getting their knowledge that they are in a theoretical echo chamber and, um, and then what would be your, I suppose, strategy or advice to, to break out of that, to further develop your learning and not be stuck in that, um, in that same sort of cycle? Yeah, it's, it's a really tough question because I'm not sure how many of these things that I guess I'm very interested in, I have more of a sort of a natural affinity for or a bit of like a better intuitive understanding of how to navigate. Um, like I can, can definitely just speak about practices um, <coughs> that I do, but yeah, I guess the first thing is, I guess I always try to be aware of is that what would be the common failure modes or what would I perceive to be the, um, the downfall of whatever current belief or you know, information gathering system that I'm implementing at the moment? You know, if I say I'm really hot on the idea of, um, you know, refeeds and diet breaks for enhancing fat loss currently what i need to then go through the process of like okay what is the piece of the puzzle that i'm potentially like completely blind to at the moment that could derail this belief like if you can't come up with some kind of um you know concept that can pop your balloon sort of per se, then odds are like you don't have any grounds for believing it. Like everything should be, I guess, believed probabilistically. Um, and if you think that you're 100% onto the answer and nothing can derail that, then yeah, that's an issue. And then I think once you've come up with the idea of, okay, what's possibly the other side to this coin that I'm missing, then you just go and try and find it. Mm. Like, and then it seems super simple. Like it's really simple in concept and difficult to do in practice, but yeah, just chase whatever um, you think is your potential downfall. Like don't run away from it, like get after it. Mm. And then it all sort of just works out. I think in the end, it's all about updating. 
It's just like, oh, okay, I previously believed that too strongly. So I'm going to weaken that a little bit, or I was undervaluing that. I'm going to update and value that a little bit more, or I was a little bit to the left when I should have been more to the right. It's just like, it's just moving around in belief space. And maybe that's another important thing just to say is it's not jumping categorically from, oh, refeeds are great to, oh, refeeds are actually yeah. useless. Yeah, exactly. Just shifting between, you know, 0 0.0 and 1.0 on mm. the belief spectrum. Like you have infinite quantities that you can hold between those two points. Mm. And just like you need to get more and more granular at certain points and go, oh, okay, this needs to be nudged in that direction or nudged back in the other. But it's, yeah, it's not categorical. It's always stepwise. And there's got to be an element of like, you know, like science in general, the fact that we're just trying to, I guess, disprove the way we think about most things regardless. So it's not always about, you know, saying, yes, okay, so calories are be all end all. So therefore anything that disproves that we throw out immediately. It's the being uncomfortable in the situation of kind of listening to that information, you know, dissecting it and then going, okay, yeah, no, I still believe my previous um, or the previous knowledge I have, but I've listened to this side of the, um, you know, the argument or the coin. Um, and that's how we can further grow our knowledge base because you might find some form of nugget within that, um, you know, that little bit there, or it might actually challenge the way you're thinking originally and then make you want to further your knowledge on that. Um, and again, like through different mediums or people or, um, you know, sources. Um, no, it's, yeah, that's a really, really, really good way of um, explaining echo chambers. So I do appreciate that. I think just to expand on that as well, I mean, one of my observations is there's a lot of people definitely in my world, in the physio world, as well as in the fitness industry, that they probably don't have that open-minded approach to um, almost have the courage to, to change their mind or something or potentially change their views and change their, their biases. Um, you know, it's it's something that I've heard you talk about previously and then the, the confirmation bias where we're seeking out information to confirm our own biases essentially and reinforce our viewpoint rather than have an open mind to change our opinion. Um, I said, I think that is, you know, you know it has been my observation rightly or wrongly that it's, it's probably right in the fitness industry that people almost place their identity on a certain concept or a certain idea. So they don't want to be open-minded to learning about something that may challenge that particular concept or that particular idea, is that something you, you would agree with Lyndon or have a different viewpoint on? No, I certainly would agree with you, Chris. Um, it's yeah. As, as humans, we're all prone to confirmation bias. And like, that is actually, while it's considered a bug of our thinking, like in many ways it, it makes for efficient, modeling and theorizing about the world like that there's a reason our brain sort of functionality ended up in that way because you can't sort of just you can't walk out the door and then run through every infinite you know option of why what you think about the world is possibly wrong you need to just have some kind of conception of like okay i believe things to be true and i'm just going to presume they're going to be more and more true like that it's the, the way our brain functions is very much to simplify the world around us so that's probably important for people to recognize like that's the general trend of our brain and it's overall useful but just trying to then step outside that and ensure you're not oversimplifying in comparison to the next person or 
whoever um, is probably a good move. Um, but in regards to the fitness industry, I would say of, yeah, of the industries I've paid attention to, um, how you present yourself, your beliefs are very much your identity in the, the fitness industry. And it's, it's unfortunate because I think ultimately it is people optimizing for the short term. It's like you can build quite um, an audience or a reputation. If you go hard on some kind of concept that's popular, it's like, I am the IIFYM guy and I'm just going to like spook IIFYM for, you know, two years. And basically over that time, I'm going to build a pretty big audience because there's a lot of people who are big on this. That's their ideology and they're subscribing to, but that, that gives you so much um, like you've invested so much in that concept and built your whole identity around it. That if you begin changing your mind, you risk losing your entire following or everything Mm -hmm. or like your business, like however you've structured your life up until that point is at risk of yeah. Falling back down if you change your mind. So my, it's always been my concern of that I might like end up doing that. And I don't want to end up in that position. I'm sure we all do it to some degree. Like it's not like I'm this perfect example of someone who can change their mind. Like I'm still way more stubborn than what I should, should be. Um, and there's innumerable beliefs that I have that I'm probably blind to um, regarding how wrong they are. But I think it's all just about like stacking the deck in your favor. And I try to minimize how much I identify with certain beliefs um, and how much I try to use ideas in the zeitgeist to leverage my own, say, popularity, because that's, that's a social tool we can all use. You know, you start, start, as I said, spruiking some idea that's hot at the moment and you gain a bit of popularity, but I think you lose touch with the truth the more you do that. And I'd rather, yeah, I'd rather stay a little closer to the truth than sort of the popular side of the spectrum. And mate, that was such a fantastic segue and you almost answered my next point on the, uh, the, the industry's bigots and charlatans. So, you know, I was going to ask um, how you think certain people do end up becoming those, you know, let's say the, the anti-sugar crowd or the, you know, the intermittent fasting crew or, you know, these sort of people. We're not going to use names because obviously we're a very family-friendly podcast and we like to hype, not, uh, you know, bring people down. But, you know, the way in which these people sort of do build their following and then do, I guess, struggle to ever listen to another argument or change even just like a slight percentage of their viewpoint, um, that, that sums up really nicely how they get, they get caught in that trap. Obviously, there's also financial gain, but you know, they, it, it does become um, you know, very difficult to then leave that um, or listen to someone else, collaborate with someone else. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I'll just, I'll just mention quickly, the reason I was smiling when you said that is if you were sort of like the concept of like monkeys on typewriters, whereas mm-hmm. if you sort of had like 100 monkeys and you just let them, you know, let them type um, until the end of time, then 
eventually they just like through random processes alone, one of them would like type out all of Shakespeare's books in order. Yeah. I was kind of thinking, I was just like, man, if I ramble long enough, I will answer Jay White's next question. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it was coming. You were just like, yeah, here we go. And, um, yeah, we've got that like telepathy going through. Like, like what? <laughs> um, to, yeah, to answer your question, sorry. Um, I think ultimately it's about incentives. Um, and this is something that we don't have to speak about on the sort of the industry profession or career levels, like just yeah. like life is incentives. Yeah. Behavior is, is very much dictated by incentives. You know, when Chris is working with someone and trying to get them to adhere to their, um, their rehab protocol or they're trying to, you know, he's trying to get them back in the field in, in six weeks, but he knows if they don't adhere, they could be out for six months. Like he needs to, design the kind of the world around this person or like engineer their thoughts to some extent to be incentivized by adhering. It's, you know, how can I portray this rehab program as a stepping stone to what they want? And that's that whole concept of incentives is really important, I think. And it's not about, um, you know, misleading people. It's just about, yeah, highlighting what they value and what they want and how you can help with that process. Um, but in regards to the industry, yeah, I think we see it's not necessarily bad people. It's, I think, yeah, just ultimately like bad incentives. It's super easy to portray yourself in one way on social media. So the incentive to be authentic or honest is, is decreased. Mm. Um, you know, you can make pretty substantial financial gain. So there's, yeah, it's like the incentive for money and yeah, it's, I guess I don't really have a, I don't know, an, a concrete answer to like what the problem is or what we can do about it. But it's not entirely surprising that people end up doing these things. I think um, I would just be, yeah, I was just going to say, sorry, I'd be more like, just be pleased. You can see it, I guess. Like if you're, <laughs> to some extent, like it's a given that people are going to do dumb things. And if you can count a few people who are doing dumb things rather than just being like, what idiots be like, mm -hmm. well, there's at least three people over there doing dumb things. Maybe that decreases my chance of being a dumb person. Yeah. That makes sense. Like, or, yeah. Like if I can't see any dumb people around me, I might be the dumb person. I like it. And I think like, it's a good point. I think like it's a bit of a team sport aspect to it as well. And the fact that like everyone wants to be a part of a community and everyone wants to be a part of a team. And if people are doing dumb yeah. shit, well, you know, they're having fun doing it. Maybe you'll go do some dumb shit too. And I think, uh, you know, trying to argue with say, for example, flat earthers, it's like there's a whole community of these people that, you know, vibe off each other. And let's go back to echo chambers. But 
they end up with that sort of, you know, now the earth is flat and like all these people around me agree that it is flat and this is why, and, you know, then it ends up being this huge community. I think that does lead to some of these, you know, these sort of almost like fabricated concepts, um, whether right, whether wrong. Um, I think, you know, the three of us are quite good at listening to information and interpreting it in our own way. But for some people, it's, you know, the tribe sort of speaks for them rather. Um, and there's always a leader of the tribe as well. So it starts at the top. But today, obviously, we're speaking about um, uh, thinking in the fitness industry and knowledge. Um, and one of, the, um, one of the biggest concepts, I think, in coaching, which I want to sort of refer back to, obviously, at the moment, your, um, your role was a little bit different. But most people would know um, Lyndon, the coach, um, and being one of the, and I can speak for myself, but one of the uh, best coaches I know, um, just to pump you up a little bit more so your head's as big as your glutes. Um, the biopsychosocial bio model is something that we speak about a lot, and I think it's getting a fair bit of traction now in the mainstream. But basically we look at the fact that we're all biological animals, okay? We are beings. Um, we have our own way of interpreting things and then, Again, our social environment does impact us. How have you worked in the past with athletes, with general pop, um, with anybody you have worked with, with myself, um, to actually sort of look after those three um, main pillars and how do you interpret that model? Yeah, so I really like the biopsychosocial model as um, just that, a model. Like the important thing to understand is all models simplify reality to some extent, like they abstract out details. They give an overly simplified, um, you know, a description of how reality is like ultimately reality is messy. People are messy. There's uncountable amounts of forces acting on a single individual, making them do what they do but the biopsychosocial model is useful in the sense that it, it at least breaks us out of, oh, okay, this is the, just the purely biological lens to view someone through like James does what he does because of say genetic reasons or blood glucose reasons or, you know, whatever sort of biological reason you want to put on it. Um, yeah, the biopsychosocial model gets us out of that and goes, no, there's, there's biological forces and there's psychological forces and there's, yeah, there's social forces. And that's, that's really useful because, yeah, ultimately there's not one single thing that you can tell someone to think to help them think about problems better. Like, but useful thinking tools and that's what I think ultimately the biopsychosocial model is, is like useful tools are, yeah, just those which decrease your likelihood of being like overly confident on a, a single cause or even a few causes. Um, so yeah, it's like, you know, you've got someone um, who's, you know, you're struggling to, to get some kind of outcome out of them. You know, they, you've got a client who wants to lose weight or, you know, you've got a, a client who wants to make, you know, who wants to make their shoulder more robust than it's ever been so they can get through a whole footy season. 
we as practitioners, I think are, are especially guilty of just thinking in the biological sense. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. what are, you know, the connective tissue related issues to this person's shoulder? Like why is their shoulder always popping out? But we can then, yeah, get outside of that and then go, well, there might be some psychological issues there as well. They, you know, every second or third time they do, they're supposed to do their rehab. They're actually feeling like their shoulders a little bit sore and they're, they're overly concerned about it. So then they skip their rehab and that, you know, ultimately might end up in um, causing biological issues downstream, but there's, there's something that might need to be addressed on the, the psychological sense. Um, or even in the social sense, like maybe at some level they believe it's cool to have, you know, war stories and injuries from football. And it's like, on one level they think, oh, I want to get this shoulder fixed. But on another, they're like, they like to be the guy around the club who's, who's in a sling and um, yeah, just like getting people coming up to them and going, oh, do you like, yeah, okay. What'd you do this time? That you mate. So, is that you? Is that me? You're down at Panola, mate. The, the trainers at Hampton Rovers tell me that you're getting six rubs every quarter. So I think that's that's you more than anyone, Jay Boy. It works. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna attack and get a pair of guns. That's a point, Lynn. And I think like something that you do really well, Chris. Pump you up now. So I'm pumping everyone up. Is um, you look at that? I guess that psychological aspect of pain more so than just the fact that it hurts. So it's <laughs> Uh, um, and yeah, I mean that. Yeah, like Lyndon said, you know, you gave a great example from my world, but the biological focus definitely in healthcare is 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 so dominant. Um, there could almost be an argument to change it to the psychosocial bio model, you know, so we're not necessarily prioritising the bio, um, which a lot of the time, you know, did we just start that? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we did. Trademark now. What's the date? Twenty first of April, two thousand twenty one, ten forty nine. Showing the fat exclusive, um, but yeah, I mean the biological model is something that so many, so many of us, you know, hone in on and have really, you know, that, um, you know, just that bias towards it, and just don't. I suppose it's probably our, our tertiary education, the formal qualifications, and especially in my industry, that that naturally bias towards the biological, naturally biases away from the psychological and social components of injury management, you know, health management, or fitness, or, or whatever it may be. Because that's where our biases lie in our education. That's where our strengths are. Whereas, you know, there's so much of a psychological component I know in my world to um, physical health and, and pain and injuries that people experience. And I'm not necessarily an expert in that, but I've been forced to learn to educate myself in the impact that you know, the psychological realm has on physical health and, and physical conditions and, and pain. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it is, it is so important. And in the industry, fitness industry is the same, you know, working towards goals. If someone wants to lose weight or gain muscle or, or whatever, you know, it's it's not just, okay, here's the program, here's the plan, go away and do it because they've got to be able to fit that into their social environment, their living environment, their um, psychological mindset, readiness, motivations, habits, preparedness, whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, it's such an important topic and it's something you, you summarize really well. In. Yeah, I think it's – well, thank you for that. Um it's been interesting to observe, I guess, the physio industry, Chris, like personally, because I like, I feel like you as a practitioner has have changed a lot over say the five years that I've known you and you as a coach as well, Jimmy, like this is 
this is a credit to both of you. Um, but I feel like the physio industry has changed so much around you as well, Chris, like if not only yet, have you changed within it, but, and maybe you might have a different perspective of this and you feel like there's a lot of dogma there that isn't changing and should, but I know at least what I thought the physio industry was like or about say five years ago and what it is now, it seems quite different and yeah, I'm not sure what you have. Do you feel like that, that is true or? I would certainly little... agree, but I'm curious to hear uh, yeah, your, your observations as to why that is as, you know, as, a, as an outsider, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I would potentially hypothesize that um, some aspects of the industry might fear that like the writings on the wall and that there is like, there, I would, I would say there is, I'll put it like this. There are people who are physios and, you know, they might be quite vocal, um, you know, about their ideas and they, they might be better classified as sort of like pseudoscientific physios. And they're like, they're using sort of physio nomenclature in terms, but in that really pseudoscientific sense. And I think a large portion of the industry possibly is trying to distinguish themselves from those people and not get dragged down with them and go, no, we're not going to go the way of, you know, the Kairos and stuff like that. Like we are a scientific <laughs> discipline and we are willing to, to update our beliefs and how we deal with people. Um, that's my little personal theory. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I do. I do definitely agree with you. It's something that, I mean, like you said, you know, a few minutes ago, I've definitely completely changed many of my beliefs and practices throughout my eight years working in the industry now. Um, which is, as I said, it, we were sort of touching that a little bit earlier and just to revert back is something that, you know, to be a really good evidence-based practitioner, um, well, I suppose in any, in any field, you need to have that open-mindedness to, to be able to say, okay, I can change my mind. I can reflect on my practice from five years ago and there's certain things I was doing then that, that I thought was best practice at the time, but I'm no longer doing. Um, and there's things that I'm doing now that I absolutely believe to be best practice that I'm sure in five years will change once again. And I think that's really important. And that's not a, you know, a swipe on anyone to be changing, developing as, you know, as they move along in their career. I mean, yeah, we're, we sort of didn't plan to talk about the physio industry today. So we're sort of sidetracked there a little bit, but I do agree with you, Lyndon. And I think there's also almost an identity battle in our industry. Um, we've spoken on the podcast before and on another episode with, uh, with Brenton Eggleston. If you haven't listened to that, go and have a listen to that. Um, we spoke about the, the manual therapy versus exercise debate. So the hand <coughs> versus active rehabilitation in, in the physio world has been massive. And, and that's one that leads into almost the identity crisis, whereas there are you know, a handful of physios that are saying that you know, we want to be completely evidence-based and we want to be completely hands-off for that reason because the manual therapists don't have the scientific background and is more potentially a pseudoscience. But at the same time, we don't want to be then losing our identity and, and sort of falling away from, um, you know, potentially looking inferior to the chiropractors or the osteopaths or the myotherapists of the world who arguably are more hands-on manual therapy based. Um, whereas on the other hand, it's like, well, if we're completely throwing that part of our profession away and not being any, you know, hands-on and we're purely diagnostics and active rehabilitation, well, then are we losing our identity to the sports scientists and the exercise physiologists of the world um, and if we're going too far in either one direction, well, 
where do we sit as a profession? But it's also, I think it's the same within the, you know, the training sphere where originally the whole PT concept was you come in, you sweat, you lose a bit of weight, you get fitter, you know, however that they, now we've got all these different caps on. We're more, you know, towards the sort of um, therapist almost where we're discussing, um, you know, with clients and getting them involved rather than telling them what to do or, you know, that it's all about the training session that, that they're completing. And, you know, it, a lot of people still sign up to training or come and contact, um, you know, uh, trainers because they want that sweat. And then we're sitting here going, well, okay, let's look at, you know, all these different, um, you know, psychological aspects of, let's let's look at your childhood let's talk about your parents like you know you, you're, you're learning about the client and they're sitting there going bro i just want to sweat <laughs> like you know i just want to lose five kilos and we're not going to get there by talking about all these stresses and etc so we lose people to the f45s and the body fits and i think i think it's a bit of an industry problem as we grow and evolve we sort of still have the trailing elements of evolution you know what i mean like there's still those things back behind us where people are sort of looking at and going but isn't that what it's all about and it's like, what's that bird that still has wings but doesn't fly? There is a bird that still has wings. Like it once. Dodo. Yeah. So it was dodos, wasn't it? They like they had um they had wings, couldn't fly. And it's like, why do they have wings? Everyone like assumes that this thing should be able to fly. It's like as the industry sort of evolves, we're still looking at like the things at the back end of it and going, well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Like, what's all this shit? Like, why is it running on land and all that? I just made that up. And then it up. <laughs> it, might, it might not be a dodo, but <laughs> yeah, I thought he was surely. Any? Maybe he's not flying. They've got massive wings. I thought he was did fly. Actually, can we get that out? That's a bit stupid. <laughs> so, so anyway, <laughs> for, yeah. Oh, this is a dog fly. I knew that. Um, I think we're out of podcast, not an animal zoology podcast. It could be. <laughs> you both raise really good points, though. Um, I'll say two things. The first is that, yes, I, th- I think we are so scared of change because of how much we, we often, you know, identify um, with our previous beliefs and construct our identity around that or just want to avoid the feeling of not knowing. It's just like you need to accept that you might not know and, like, that's what's required to change your beliefs. That's really scary for people, but... I love the quote um, that like not all change is progress, but all progress requires change. And that's just something that like I I constantly try and internalize and be like, okay, yes. You know, if you change your mind or like you change your habits, your lifestyle, people are going to be like, Oh, but yesterday you believed that, or like you've changed as a person. It's like, ultimately my job is not to, to act in the way that makes everyone happy and keeps me the same. It's, to get better at my job, to be a better person, to just progress my knowledge. Um, They're the values I hold. So I was like, if they're the values I hold, then people are going to comment on my changing. And that's, they're things that I think we've all sort of got to, got to accept. Just like, okay, what's, what's the sharp end of this stick? If this is the stick that I want. Um, the other thing I was going to say in regards to say like manual therapy or helping people, you know, really just achieve that sweat is um, there's a blog post I really like 
it's something like titled, I think it's scientific evidence, legal evidence and rational evidence. Ultimately, I think as practitioners, we need to be more concerned with that sphere of like rational evidence. Okay. This might have scientific evidence for it. And if it does great, then I can implement it as a practitioner with a greater degree of confidence. If it doesn't have scientific evidence, you know, massively supporting it, but I have, you know, good reason to believe that it will be net neutral, potentially beneficial. And the research maybe in time will show it to be beneficial then I should still possibly consider implementing it in my practice. Like it might be rational for me to do so, even if it isn't say like scientific gold standard as of yet. And that like that, that's a bit of a gray area. Like and different practitioners may have different um, views on that. But what I believe the job of the practitioner is, is to primarily to like help the individual coming to see them it's not a pissing contest with other practitioners about who can have the highest gold standard of best practice going on. It's I am helping people and I'm developing my own theories from the ground up while the top down academic evidence is also being filtered down to me. Um, so I think that's, yeah, something we all need to recognize as practitioners a bit. I really like that um, and a concept that we also discussed in a bit more depth in our episode with Brenton was that the whole idea of evidence-based practice and evidence-based practice is not purely based on science and research. Um, so evidence-based practice, we talk about the sort of three pillars is one, science and research, um, two, clinical experience or you know experience in your own industry, whatever that may be, and three is the, the client of individual preferences who come in, in front of you do you know what I mean so it's not purely like you said on you know, who can rattle off the, the most you know systematic review conclusions to say this is the most evidence-based way to do something um come back to James's point about someone who might be coming to a personal trainer because they want to get a sweat on not because you know for any necessarily any other reason you might as an evidence-based you know science-based you know personal trainer or coach be saying well okay this isn't necessarily the best thing to do for your health or for your goals for x y and z but is that being completely evidence-based? Is that doing the best thing by the client if you're not completely opening yourself up to their preferences as well as mm. what the research and science says? So I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Lyndon, on how you sort of do juggle, um, you know, those sort of sides of the coin when it comes to the client <coughs> expectations in the fitness world as a coach and their sort of their own sort of, you know, obviously we come back to the biopsychosocial, their own sort of psychological mindset when it comes to what they want to get out of. Um, their own fitness or their own health as well as their sort of social surroundings and preconceptions about what fitness and personal training may be and tying that into, you know, an evidence-based scientific approach that obviously, um, you know, your is one of your strengths and you're so passionate about. Yeah, I think an idea that was very, that's probably still popular, um, but that I was definitely say like raised on was as a coach, you want to, um, you know, give people a mix of what they need and what they want. And I think, I think there's definitely like truth captured in that. Um, but I think probably more so as a practitioner, what you need to work out is what, whether what they say they want is actually what they want. It's that investigation process of, okay, you're telling me you want to get a sweat on. You're telling me that, you know, you want to leave here like 
crawling and then sort of throw up in the car park before you, you know, drink your post-workout shake. But like, what, what is the implications of that that you actually want? Like, why do you want that? Mm. And it's that sort of going back to go forwards thing. Like if ultimately they want that because they think that's what must be done in order to grow, you know, a big set of legs or glutes or get shredded, then I need to know that information. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it shouldn't be this, this tug of war between, I'll oh, give them a little bit of their, their three giant sets back to back. So they feel crap while also I do another day that's focused on mechanical tension so they can actually grow some muscle. It isn't this, what I want for them and what they want for themselves. It's let's align these so that we're both on the same page. You're understanding why I'm you know, prescribing these things or recommending these things. And yeah, I'm understanding why you're asking for what you're asking for. So, yeah, I think it's that maybe it's a bit of a dance around the question, Chris, but I think ultimately it's like getting on the same page with the person and it's, it's very collaborative. Um, and I guess, yeah, JY can speak to this point that I guess we try and do stay in touch and he, you know, we might touch base a few times a week, but he will often say, Oh, actually sort of like what I said in my last check-in, you know, actually sort of, you know, that was maybe that was a fluctuation in mood or that was, you know, I thought I wanted that, but it turns out I actually want this. And sometimes I'll say, actually, I made a bad call. Like I thought we should be upping your leg volume, but you know, now that you've got this issue, we probably should be downing it. Whereas I think, again, we get really wrapped up in just preserving, um, the validity of what we'd said previously. It's like, Oh, if I said Jimmy had to up his leg volume, I've got to create this narrative for the next three or four weeks that that's what he should be doing. And, you know, anything, anything that causes issues relating to that, I need to explain away and say, Oh, it's the football that he's doing, or it's the, you're not doing your, you know, your rehab that you spoke to Chris about. But yeah, I think ultimately just being more willing to engage with the client as an individual who's coming with their own really useful set of knowledge and both being willing to admit that you may have had things wrong previously, be it months ago or hours ago, and then just explore the territory going forward together. Yeah. And just to touch on that, sorry, Chris, that was a big like inhale of information coming out. Um, just touching that, and I've just for our listeners, obviously, Lyndon does coach me. So Lyndon um, and I work together. Fortunately for us, we are, um, Lyndon's a lot smarter and more handsome than I am, but he and I have a very similar way of looking at things um, on the, you know, on the most of the time. But um, with some people that I guess coaches work with, it does take a little bit longer and it is a collaborative effort rather than, a, like you said, that, that sort of like, black and white, like what they want, what they need. And sometimes it is sort of starting like somewhere on a, on again, I love spectrums, everything's on a spectrum, but it is starting somewhere and just sort of moving over time towards one end or the other, okay? And as you sort of like, it's almost like a dose-response relationship as you sort of like give a little bit of like, let's focus on this or, you know, let's try to, um, you know, um, implement a bit of this, it's seeing how that 
works you know and that's the same in language like you might find that you speak in this way to kind of explain a concept and realize that they just don't get it that doesn't work okay and then they you know things go backwards but that's okay because then you can sort of alter the way in which you communicate or coach that person um and that's something that i do encourage a lot of young coaches to just understand to sort of like realize that you'll never have someone walk into a session for the first time or a consult and then walk out and you're like great here's the next 12 months of your coaching because everything changes along the way, okay? Whether that's, yeah, again, go look at the biopsychosocial, what the psychosocial bio sort of uh, explanation we had before, but, you, you know, things change for a multitude of reasons. Same as you, Chris, you'll have someone who comes in, they might have an issue, you know, because of X, but, you know, Y impacts it further, but in the first session there was no Y, there was only X um and i think that that's why like you know change and um i'm going on a real tangent here but change and all this sort of does happen over a longer period of time rather than you know in that sort of like one moment well um i'll just jump in and say i, I do really enjoy and appreciate your, your sort of analytical style to, to thinking um learning in your practice linden and i'm sure our listeners are we're certainly going to enjoy that as well, which is why we're, we're obviously stoked to have you with us today. Um, but that sort of leads us into a couple of your own projects, which I'm keen to hear a little bit more uh, about from you. Um, so the first one is your website, thereforethink.org. Um, I'm not even going to summarise it, mate. I just want to hear yeah, from you um, what Therefore Think is, uh, is all about. Yeah, that's a, at the moment, it's about not posting anything. (laughs) (laughs) At the moment, it's, yeah, just like this thing that operates the back of my mind being like, hey, you got to post something on there, like eventually. Um, But yeah, so I guess to sort of link it in with um, my description of the coach client process just previously, I, I really do see you know, um, helping someone as an investigation process. You're both going through it together. You don't, as a client, go to a coach and the coach goes, this is what you need. And like, that's almost become a bit of a gold standard, um, you know, perceived gold standard in the industry. It's like, oh, they walked in and I summarized them within 30 seconds. I knew they needed this, they needed glute work and I fixed their squat within a 30 minute session. It's like, I'm way more attracted to the practitioner who's like, actually after eight months of working together, I'm still building a model for this person, but I think I'm getting closer and we've had some good improvements along the way. Mm. So that's kind of, that's what I think of the coach client relationship. And I guess ultimately like that's what I'm trying to do um, with the blog. It's like, I'm not writing about more general life and philosophical, political, or whatever things thinking, Hey, here's the ideology that is correct. And you should all believe it because it's correct. It's here's what I think based on, you know, sort of like these resources. Um, yeah. Tell me what you guys think. <laughs> like that's, that's the whole kind of idea of just like, I'm just trying to construct arguments and ideas, um, putting them out there and then getting, feedback on them yeah but yeah ultimately i really like the the writing process i feel like it it helps me assimilate my own experiences and and comb through them so yeah thank you for mentioning that i think therefore think 
Therefore, therefore, think to me does seem like, you know, your opportunity to sort of get these concepts that you want out into the public and to sort of, you know, let people interpret it in their own sort of way. Um, it is a it is a fantastic resource for anyone who wants to sort of, I found it, go down some rabbit holes. And even though obviously you haven't posted as much recently, there is plenty of content going back. One of your best posts I know was, I think it was about a year ago, it was your one on productivity. Um, it was a little bit more linear. But, yeah, if anybody hasn't read it, um, go back onto it. it we'll was, like a link in the show notes. Yeah, we'll chuck a link up. That was a fantastic, I think it was a three-parter. Um, I think it ended up being like six, to be honest. It was a very unproductive way to speak about productivity. <laughs> there was a bit in it when you mentioned that. You were kind of like, yeah, this isn't like super productive, but it was like, <laughs> Um, but really, really, really good post. And especially with uh, the 2020 fund that we all had, um, that was a, um, I got a lot out of that. I really, really did. Um, more so the concept of thinking about being productive and what it really is rather than how to be productive. So thank you for that. Yeah. The, uh, the other project of yours, the other medium to, to share your, your wonderful knowledge and analytical brain is your podcast, Philosophy AU. Can you, uh, tell us a little bit about that? Please, Lindy. Yeah, so um, Philosophy AU is a little project with, um, I guess, a, a mutual friend of, of all of ours. I think, yeah, everyone met Josh along the way somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, Josh, Josh Kakataki. Um, he, he and I were, like, we've always been, I guess, interested in a lot of these ideas and spoke about them a lot along the way for, for years and years. Then ultimately during you know, lockdown from COVID, Josh and I were going on three hour walks, just like leaving our phone in the car and feeling so good for just having these big, long, long winded discussions about what we were thinking about. Um, and yeah, we sort of just had often spoken about starting a podcast and then we just, yeah, eventually just bit the bullet and did it. Um, so yeah, that's, it's hard to define exactly what philosophy AU is. Um, I think even the sort of the philosophy term makes it sound more esoteric or reductive than what it is. It's like, it's ultimately just a couple of guys who are like thinking and just talking about their experiences a bit. Um, but yeah, I think maybe to, to summarize or I've summarized both the activities, but maybe the purpose of them is because I still see this as a very, exploratory phase of my life um i really don't or i hope i'm nowhere near um the level of things that i'll know in 50 years like i really do see that i've still got a, a vast gap to cover and i think one of the ways that will help me bridge that gap is by putting more content out getting more feedback on it as well as just exploring different mediums of you know, information sort of creation and consumption. Um, you know, you guys have got a podcast and it's like you're exploring the digital sphere to a greater extent. And I don't think um, having a positive influence these days is just about having an analytical brain or a good idea. It's also having the ability to express it and get it out there to people and, mm. yeah, share it. Yeah. So that's sort of why I'm trialing those things. And I'm sure you guys have, have learned a lot out of starting a podcast as well. So. Very similar to our 
We'll get a link uh, in the show notes for Philosophy AU as well. Um, you've been very generous with your time, and we've kicked over just over an hour, but I've got two sort of quick questions um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on to, to finish our chat today. Um, quite simply, if you can give us one thing that you would change about the fitness industry and why, um, why and our listeners would love to hear it. Oh, one thing I would change. Top one without um, notice. <laughs> sorry? The top one without notice. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe I would say hiding the amount of followers someone has. Nice. Well, that is, that's a good answer. Why? Like, because I think it would, it, would function in a similar way to the way that um, you know, hiding the likes has. Mm. And ultimately some credibility may be lost along the way, but I would hope that encourages people to be more of their own, um, to use a very nerdy term, like Bayesian updaters. Like, okay, it, I can't just go, oh, there's an authority. I'm going to start believing them because they have X amount of followers. It's, Oh crap. Like all these people look the same to me, you know, from a following sort of reputation standpoint, how am I going to decipher where the truth is on the matter? So that might be a bit optimistic, but I would hope. Um, all right. You know what? I reckon it's probably more likely we're going to have research papers soon. That's going to say, you know, be Schoenfeld and how many followers they have than we are to get rid of followers. So I like your optimism and I think that's one of, that's a fantastic answer that we do live in, uh, in the 21st century, don't we? Mm, that's um, a great answer. Lyndon. <laughs> Lyndon. Sorry, I was just going to say that's very insightful, James. We do live in the 21st century. We do. We do. <laughs> I sometimes like to remind people and just remind myself <laughs> that we are in the computer age. Um, I, still, I still write things down rather than use my phone, so... Um, hey, mate, we're not going to keep you any longer now because you've got a, uh, a furniture delivery coming. So uh, your time's precious, we know. Um, we'll finish up with one last question. Tomato sauce, do you put it in the fridge or do you put it in the pantry? In the pantry. And why? What a man. And why? And why? <laughs> it's, it, I, I don't like things that jar me too much. Like I'm... I'm a little bit obsessive about how I construct my life and many people have commented along that uh, on the way about that, but I don't like putting cold sauce on hot food because it just confuses me too much. And I'm too aware of, I'm too aware of where like the hot bit in the pie is and the cold bit of the sauce. And I'm thinking about like, ultimately I've just got this yin yang image and I'm just like a pie shouldn't be this yin yang image in my mind's eye. It should be just this enjoyable experience. And if I'm thinking about where the bloody hot spots in the food are and the cold spots of the sauce, then this is an issue. But I just want to ask, like, everyone says, that seems to be a very common answer, not quite that in-depth, but that, that <laughs> contrast. How cold are people's fridges? It's like, I don't know about you guys, but I have mine set to, like, it's got, like, numbers out of one to five. I've got it set to, like, I'm four. I'm going to tell you how cold my fridge <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes this is with that exclusive i love this yeah uh, the coldness of linden's fridge that's a good fridge um, too. three degrees 
Freezer is <laughs> minus mi- minus nineteen. Would that be right? See, okay. So you get the source and the freezer, then that would make sense. The contrast, but three degrees. So like, three degrees. We get down about like nine. That. We get down about nine in the winter in Melbourne. The pantry doesn't get that you know, that warm. I, I love I love your answer, Lyndon. I love the fact that I'm a pantry man, and we've had four guests on so far, and, and we're like, it's two pantry, one fridge, and one on the fence. So who's on the fence? Winning. Friends on the fence. Interesting you mentioned the sauce on the fence. Interesting you mentioned the contrast because. That is the exact reason that I dislike the sauce being in the fridge because that contrast of hot and cold sauce isn't great. It's the equivalent of like you get a frozen meal out of the freezer and you put it in the microwave and you have these hot bits and then there's cold bits in the middle. Like that contrast is just not what you want. Although I would argue the one exception to the rule would be cold ice cream with hot apple pie. So then you're just, you're just <laughs> okay. contradicting yourselves, guys. So. <laughs> I would, I think I'm correct in saying as well, food is actually more flavorful when it's at a warmer temperature like it's there's i guess it would be a a chemical or like the way the chemical reaction like cold temperatures slow down chemical reactions and i think like the sauce is genuinely less flavorsome at a colder temperature so you can you can extract more from your sauce by keeping it a warmer temperature then why is ice magic so delicious oh that's a good question. Thank you. Oh, sorry, Chris. No, no, I just wanted to say for the third or fourth time, I love the way you think, Lindsay, um, especially the answer to that question, which is the most important of, the, of today. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of this conversation, mate. So thanks so much for being so generous with your time and, uh, and chewing the fat with JY and I today. Thanks so much, guys. It was a pleasure. i got a ton of respect for you both. So I appreciate it. As we time. do with you, mate. Thank you very much for uh, giving us your time. Done. That's a wrap. Cool. Thanks, guys. No, oh, mate. Thank you. Um, I thought when you got up there, I was like, oh, no, there it is. <laughs> the furniture's here. No. <laughs> this is a that exclusive scene like Lyndon's getting delivered. No, it was, um, I just, yeah, remembered noticing on the fridge that day. I was like, oh, holy fuck. Like, it just tells me how cold it is. So I was just, yeah, top of mind when you mentioned that. Um, you had a nice fridge. It's definitely not like mine, which some you know small dude named Dimitri sort of you know, got off Facebook Marketplace and rocked up with a trolley. Like you put a proper, you know, a proper fucking food storage there. I'm pretty much at retirement age these days, James. I'm just like <laughs> buying nine things for my house, and I'm just going to retire, retire to the coast though. So no, that's that's totally fine for. No, I don't blame you. Like, no, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Um, yeah don't don't let me hold you up guys nah um just thanks again mate that was awesome i think we um we uh we got a whole heap of information there out of you so (laughs) yeah thank Um, you i appreciate you listening to me go on my my tangents no, we, we knew that was going to happen (laughs) (laughs) and we love you for it so love it it's made and appreciate your time Thanks, guys. It was an absolute pleasure. Keep in touch. See you, dude.